Would you join me, please? We're going to go to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. While you are turning there, we're going to deal with verses 13 to 22 this morning. That's the plan. But while you're turning there, I want to point out what we talked about last week. We're in a section that runs from the beginning of chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 6. And there are five different controversies, five different conflicts that the religious leaders have with Jesus. And last week we dealt with the first one about the forgiveness of sin. That paralytic came through the roof and Jesus healed him but said, your sins are forgiven you and created a controversy with the religious leaders to prove that Jesus is powerful enough to heal and Jesus is powerful enough to forgive from sin. That was last week. This week we're going to deal with the second and the third one, eating with sinners. How could Jesus possibly eat with sinners? And then... They have a problem with his eating. They also have a problem with him not fasting. So both, both ends of the spectrum. They want him to fast like they do on two days a week. So we'll talk about that. And then, Lord willing, next week, or possibly the week following, I'm not sure yet, we will talk about plucking and eating the grain on the Sabbath and then healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. So a lot of this ties into their traditions. And Jesus... I would say politely, but forcefully is invading their territory and dealing with their traditions. And we're going to talk about that by the time we get finished today. Hopefully you've had a chance to find this. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read our passage. This is chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them and as he passed by he saw levi the son of alphaeus sitting at the tax office and said to him follow me and he arose and followed him now it happened as he was dining in levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old. And the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let's pray together, please. Father, we come to you as needy people. We need your grace, we need your mercy. Give us a right view of you, a holy and yet loving God, 
Give us a right view of ourselves today, of sinners in need of your mercy and grace. But Lord, give us confidence because of your mercy and grace that you befriend us, that you forgive us, that you welcome us into your presence. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your call on our lives that you are willing to and even eager to accept and use broken creatures. I pray that you would make us vessels appropriate, suitable for your use. Lord, I ask for your help today. Help for me that I would be able to speak accurately and clearly and boldly, that my voice would cooperate. And Lord, that you would help all of us as we listen to your word. That you would clarify it by the help of your Holy Spirit. That you would show us how it applies to us today. That you would accomplish your purposes in this time together, studying your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A couple of the study aids that I use, a couple different commentators, said similar things about this section, kind of three different ideas. This is Warren Wearsby. In this passage, Jesus taught three important lessons about his ministry. First, he came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. Came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. Two, he came to bring gladness, not sadness. Gladness, not sadness. And three, he came to introduce the new, not to patch up the old. He's bringing something new, not just repairing or rehabilitating what is old. So as I see it, this section describes new things. A new disciple, Matthew. New friends, Matthew's friends. And how to deal with some new ideas, some new concepts. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a verse you may know. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When we come to Christ, he makes us new. Though our lives are new. What we thought of as religion is going to be blown out of the water because what he's offering is something new. And that's what we're going to see today. So I have two main ideas. I realize it could have been three because the outline fits more like three. But this is what I see and what I'm going to try to bring out. Number one, Jesus is a friend of sinners. We see that in verses 13 to 17 of this passage. And he's actually called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, if you look at those cross-references in Matthew and Luke. And then second, Jesus makes everything new. We see that in the second half of our passage today, verses 18 to 22. And in the verse I just read from 2 Corinthians. And in a verse you may remember from Revelation, our series there, when we got to the end, we saw, Behold, I am making all things new new so he is a god who makes things new he makes everything new so with those two ideas in mind those two main points i have two questions first are you a friend of sinners jesus is are you and number two do you accept the newness that christ brings when he comes into our lives he changes things he shakes things up, sometimes in ways that make us uncomfortable. Are you accepting that? Are you embracing that? Are you ready for that? 
Ask yourself those questions as we study this together. We're going to go back to verse 13 now. Then he, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea, and that's the Sea of Galilee, so they're near Capernaum, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. Jesus is continuing his ministry. What is the main focus of, a, of his ministry? On teaching. Worked some amazing miracles. Certainly came ultimately to die on the cross. But his ministry, the three years or so that he walked on earth and ministered, was all about his teaching. And again, Mark tells us that he taught. He doesn't tell us what he said. The verb tenses here suggest that the people kept coming and he kept teaching them. And more people came and he kept teaching. And this is what's going on. When we get to verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So as he, Jesus, passed by the tax office, where are we? We believe that it's in Capernaum. Capernaum was, we said before, it's a customs post. It is a crossroads on the caravan route that ran from Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. And because it was stationed on the Sea of Galilee, it's quite possible that this tax post, this little tax depot, was involved in taxing the fishermen's trade, collecting taxes on the fish that they caught. It calls him here Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Levi. Does that name sound familiar from the Old Testament? Yes. He was probably from the tribe of Levi. We don't know that for sure, but probably from the tribe of Levi. Levi means joined or joined to. And it says here he's the son of Alphaeus. Some argue that he may have been the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus. That's in chapter 3, verse 18. Probably not. Apparently, Alphaeus was a very common name. You don't hear Alphaeus or Alf very often around here anymore. But apparently, that was a very common name in that time. And so... It, it would be odd that they were brothers if they're never mentioned together the way James and John and Peter and Andrew have been mentioned already and in the other Gospels. But he, Levi, we know him as Matthew, and he's one of the 12. He was a tax collector. We're going to talk about what that means. But the name Matthew, we don't know why he ended up going by Matthew. If Jesus gave him that name or if he claimed that name, because at that time, if you changed jobs, if you changed careers, you might take on a new name. A new nickname. That seems so strange to us, but that's what they did. Matthew means gift of God, gift of Jehovah. So this man who had been a thief goes by the name gift of God. Let's talk about tax collectors. I have three T's for you that go together here. Tax collectors were considered traitors because they worked for the Roman government, and they were considered thieves because they deliberately overcharged the people. So that's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. He's sitting at his tax booth, Levi, going to be called Matthew, and he is a traitor and a thief. So we'll see how this goes. I have some information to share with you that I think ultimately came from William Barclay, a historian and commentator, and he tells us a little bit about the tax system. We have a complicated tax system, I believe, in the United States. I think it's fairly complicated. Theirs was complicated and arbitrary. It was, in many ways, up to the person collecting the tax. So let me tell you about it. The Romans collected taxes through a system called tax farming, and it would be somewhat like franchises are today. Here's, here's a McDonald's down at the other end of this building, and that is a franchise. So you buy into and you have to do it their way. Same idea. Apparently there were three main tax offices 
in Israel. There was one in the north, Caesarea Philippi. There was this one in Capernaum. And then there was one down at Jericho. And the idea was that they would collect taxes. Whom are they collecting taxes for? The Romans. And the way you became the owner of the tax office is that you bid. They auctioned it off to the highest bidder. Rome said, we want X amount of tax revenue from this office, and you have to collect it. And so they would auction it off, and whoever said, oh, I think I can get that and more, would pay his premium price, and then anything he collected above and beyond what Rome was requiring was his to keep. And he would have other tax collectors working for him. Matthew probably wasn't the big kahuna here. He wasn't the big boss, but he was probably working for the one who was over that tax office who had been the highest bidder to take that over. There were two ta categories of taxes. There were the stated taxes, and there were three kinds that I read about. There was a poll tax, simply for living and breathing the air in the Roman Empire, you got to pay a tax each year from when you turned 14 until you were 65 if you're a man, or if you're a woman, you get to start at age 12 and go to 65. And that was just because you lived in the Roman Empire, you got to pay the poll tax. A ground tax, it was one-tenth of all grain and one-fifth of all wine and oil produced. And in some places, probably here in Capernaum, they also taxed fish. Then there was an income tax, and this is the part that I liked. The income tax was 1% of your annual income. That sounds good to me. So they had a flat tax there for, for 1%. Those were kind of pretty clear. There wasn't a lot of argument. There wasn't a lot of um, extortion going on with those types of tax. But then there were the duties. That was the second area. And that's where the abuse occurred. They would have to pay taxes for using roads, kind of like toll roads, or docking in harbors. There was a sales tax on some items. There were export duties. For example, there was a tax paid if you owned a cart. And then however many wheels you had on your cart, you paid an extra amount. So it was set up, it, and when I say it was arbitrary, you could come this week and it's $5 per wheel. So you pay your $20 if you have a four-wheel cart. And next week, revenue's not coming in very well, so now it's $50 per wheel on your cart. Whatever that equates to in their Roman currency, that was the idea. It, it was as much or as little as that tax man thought that you should pay. Why? Because ultimately, his profit margin was based on how much he charged you, how much he could get away with. Did Rome care? No, not as long as they got their revenue. Did the Jewish people around him care? Absolutely, and they hated him for it. So these were the most hated men in Hebrew society. So he said they were the lowest of the lowest. So we read this, and isn't that nice? Jesus is calling a tax collector to be his disciple. And we like that, and we're familiar with that, no big deal. Oh, no. <laughs> to them, this is on par, and possibly even worse than, recently we studied that Jesus reached out and touched that leper to cleanse him. It's like that. It's something you just do not do. You would not get near a leper. You would not touch a leper. You would not associate with a tax collector, let alone call one to be with you. Because what was it to be a disciple? To be a disciple is to be a follower, a learner, and it was as much about being with the master, the teacher, as it was learning his teaching. It was coming to be with him. So he's about to develop a friendship, a mentorship, a relationship with Matthew. John Corson said, Jesus specializes in using the despised and rejected 
because that's all there is. That's people just like us. The despised, the rejected, those are the ones he loves. Those are often the ones he calls. So as a matter of fact, just a very brief statement, he arose and followed him. We could call this Matthew's conversion. He arose, he followed, he obeyed. He believed Jesus. Some people think he might have been chewing on this for a little bit of time. He may have already come to the, the conclusion that he was convicted of his sins and he was responding to Jesus' call. I think this is a good point for me to remind you of the theme that I believe is in the book of Mark. And that is that Jesus is the suffering servant and he calls disciples. So the theme then is Jesus as the suffering servant and his call and the cost of being his disciple. There is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. What was it for Matthew? Well, Luke tells us in chapter 5 of his gospel, and leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. He left everything. And you say, well, yeah, but so did the fishermen. Yes, they did. The fishermen left their nets, right? James and John left their father in the boat, right? But it's not the same thing. It sounds the same to us in English, in our modern culture, our mindset. It's not the same thing. For, for Matthew to walk away from that tax booth was permanent. If you left your post working for the Roman government as an outsider, if you left, you were done. You could not come back. You could not say, oh, I changed my mind. I want to come back. Could I please reapply? No. Forget it. So he's turning his back on his livelihood, which was probably a very good livelihood. That's what he's leaving. That's what he's choosing to leave in order to follow Jesus. So what's our first main point this morning? That Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's, that's what we get into now. Look at verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners, and if you pay attention, you're going to see that phrase three times, once in this verse, twice in the next one, Many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. He was dining in Levi's house. Again, the parallel passage in Luke 5 tells us that this feast was at Matthew's house, and he gave it in Jesus' honor. What was Matthew doing? He's bringing his old friends to meet his new friends, and particularly to let his old friends meet Jesus. The people who would associate with him would have to be other tax collectors and sinners because nobody else would. Tax collectors were ostracized. They were kept at a distance in some ways, like the lepers, had to be kept away. So this group of tax collectors and sinners, or your translation may say publicans and sinners, others would have nothing to do with them, but Jesus received them gladly. He ate with them. He had no problem with them. That doesn't mean he acted like them, but he was not going to be affected by them. He was coming for the sake of ministering to them. It's interesting to consider how Jesus' disciples would have felt. I don't think this would have gone well with Peter and Andrew and James and John. They probably were being nice on the outside for the sake of, all right, Jesus is doing this. This is what we need to do. We really don't like this they probably would have been against adding Matthew to the mix. What about you? 
it seems that on that first day when Matthew followed Jesus, when he was converted, when he got saved, we might say, he had started introducing his friends to Jesus. Is that something that you're doing? Is it important to you to be able to introduce your friends to Jesus? You say, I don't know any unsaved people. They're not my friends. Okay, then we need to reach out a little bit and develop some new relationships probably. Because part of our responsibility as a disciple of Jesus is to bring others to him, to introduce others to him. That idea of Jesus being the friend of sinners, I, I mentioned that at the beginning. Matthew 11, Luke 7 are where we find that statement. So the sinners knew they were sinners. And so they responded joyfully to being invited to be with Jesus. He was okay with them. Nobody else was. Side note, but this verse also tells us about Jesus and his disciples. That's the first time that his disciples, we know of only five of them at this point in the book of Mark, that there were five that were called his disciples. Later he'll name the 12. We'll get to that in another chapter or so. Verse 16, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, there it is again, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Well, let's review who the scribes and Pharisees are. In fact, your translation may say the scribes of the Pharisees, because that's literally what it says. What that tells us is that not all scribes in that day were Pharisees. Many were, not all were. Well, the Pharisees were known for keeping the law, obeying the law. They were particularly interested in the tradition, the oral law that had been communicated. John Phillips put it this way. The scribes were the custodians of the text of Scripture, and the Pharisees were the custodians of the traditions of strict Scripture. So the scribes, they're writing it down. They know what's in it. They're the lawyers of that day. They, they knew what the wording was. They were experts in that. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the experts at keeping it, and particularly the traditions that had been handed down. We've already talked about tax collectors, the bad reputation that they had, and then this other group, sinners. Well, this was a group that didn't try to keep the ceremonial laws. They certainly weren't trying to keep the traditions that were so important to the Pharisees. So the religious leaders would have considered them to be vile and worthless people. Now, what else is interesting here to me is that the scribes and Pharisees, or the scribes of the Pharisees, came and whom did they talk to? You see it there? They said to his disciples. See, in the last story, Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they reasoned in their hearts. You remember that? They were thinking to themselves, Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sin. That's what he, they were doing before. They were just thinking in their hearts, and he responded to that. They're getting a little bolder. They're scribes and Pharisees now. So they are verbalizing their concerns, but they're still going to talk to his disciples. Apparently they still have a little bit of fear of or reverence for Jesus. So they come and they talk to the disciples. And what is their objection? That he is eating with. Literally he is reclining at table with these people, these sinners, these tax collectors, that he would associate himself Again, some of you may go to a restaurant after this service, and you won't know most of the people there, and that doesn't matter to us in this culture. You don't think about, oh, we have something deeply in common because we're eating this meal at the same time. At that point, and still 
in much of Middle Eastern culture. If you have a meal together, that is significant. That is that I trust you that we are eating the same food, that theoretically, mystically, the same kind of food is coming into us and becoming one, and we're becoming one through what we eat. That's what it meant to them. So it was a big deal. Why would you eat with? Why would you fellowship with? Why would you hang out with these kind of people? Now, they are right. They usually have something right. They are right that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Nobody is taking issue with that. It's a true statement. But they don't understand why he's doing it. Verse 17 tells, tells us, when Jesus heard it, either he overheard what they were saying to his disciples or his disciples came and told him, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we have these four groups that are listed in this verse. The well and the sick, the righteous and the sinners. So in Jesus' illustration here, his symbolism, he's comparing the well to the righteous and the sick to the sinners. Make sense? Jesus is making a comparison. And he's also leaving it to those who are listening to determine which group they're in. Are you well? Are you sick? Are you righteous? Are you sinful? He's leaving it up to them. And of course, what are the Pharisees going to think? What are the scribes going to think? We're well. We are a picture of good health. That's what they're thinking, because we are righteous. How do I know I'm righteous? Because I'm keeping all the rules and then some. That was their standard that they were going by. The sinners in the room would have identified as, okay, yeah, he's talking about us. We're sick. We need help. And they realized that. What nobody seemed to realize is that everybody in the room except Jesus was sick. Everybody in the room except Jesus was sinful. Mark in his gospel, I don't believe, ever refers to Jesus as the great physician. That's a Luke idea. But there's still the hint of it here. Someone wrote that Jesus did not consider these people rejects. Matthew's friends were patients who needed a physician, and Jesus was that physician. We've already seen that sin can be compared to sickness and forgiveness to having your health restored. Now we see that our Savior may be compared to a physician. He comes to us in our need. He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides final and complete cures, and he even pays the bill. That's our physician. That's Jesus, the great physician. Now, when you're sick, you usually know it. How many of you just like waiting rooms, and if, if you're feeling well and healthy, you go sit in the doctor's waiting room? Anybody do that? No. Normally, we don't go to the doctor unless we need to, or maybe for an annual physical, a, a reason to go to a wellness check, right? Physically sick people know when they're sick. But those scribes and Pharisees and others who are self-righteous don't know they're sick in fact in some cases the more religious a person is the less likely he is to realize he's sick he's sinful those last two words of my verse may not be in your translation depending on what group of texts yours is using but the last two words i have are to repentance 
We know what repentance is. We've, we've talked about it almost every week of our ser- uh, series in Mark so far. So repentance is an about face. It's a U-turn. It's turning my back on sin and turning to God. And you say, well, it's not in the manuscript. It may not be. The parallel over in Luke has it. So that's okay. Luke 5.32 adds to repentance. So biblically, it's true. We can verify it. But what's the point? Someone who's going to repent is the person who realizes he's, lo- he's lost. He needs a savior. He needs saving. So he's going to realize that he's a sinner, and he needs, in this case, a doctor. That's the first idea. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Are you a friend of sinners? Jesus is. Are you extending yourself in relationships to people who aren't like you, that you may have nothing in common with? People you may not even like, but who need Jesus. Jesus was a friend of sinners. We need to be a friend of sinners. Second idea for today, Jesus makes everything new. He changes us. He changes the rules, if you will. He's here to make everything new. And this is now the third question from his critics. If you want to see the others, they've already been in this chapter. Verse 7 is what we saw last time. Their question, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then we just saw one in verse 16. How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Well, now they have another question. But now we've had another group. We had the scribes of the Pharisees, and now we have the Pharisees and another group that's a surprise to us because the other group is the disciples of John, the Baptist. It's verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, who are the disciples of John? It would help us to know that. We don't have their names or anything like that. But it was the group who had been following John, but did not switch over and start becoming followers of Jesus when John was imprisoned. Remember, According to Mark and the other Gospels, Jesus began his public ministry, began preaching after John was put in prison. So when John was put in prison, some of John the Baptist's disciples followed Jesus. Among them would be Andrew, would for sure be one, maybe those other fishermen as well. But not everybody did. Some of them continued to follow him. So they were forming a group. And then we already talked about who the Pharisees are. But this is a little humorous because the Pharisees as a group rejected John the Baptist. They did not accept that he was a prophet or that they needed to repent or really that anybody else did. Maybe there were some people who needed to repent. So they rejected John the Baptist and his ministry and his disciples, therefore. Do you remember how John the Baptist felt about the religious leaders, the Pharisees? They came out to see what he was doing. He said, you brood of vipers, you snake babies, that's what he's saying he didn't have any warm and fuzzy feelings toward the Pharisees. And yet now they they are in the same group because they have something in common. What do they have in common? They're fasting. And Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, and therefore Jesus' disciples aren't as holy as we are. That's kind of the mindset here. What is this about fasting? Well, we understand often we're talking about food, going without food for a period of time. Moses, for example, when he was receiving the Ten Commandments, fasted. 40 days. 
Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, we read that he fasted 40 days and was tempted there in the wilderness. He was by himself. Often it means food. It can be going without something else. And usually it is tied to mourning, like I'm sad about something and should be, or it could be repentance. That's probably the reason John and his disciples had been fasting as a sign of repentance. I am sorry for my sin and therefore I am doing without food. Funniest thing I heard this week was that it wasn't really that big a deal for John to go without eating because when he got to eat, it was only locusts and honey anyway. But they were fasting theoretically for the right reasons. They were fasting because they were mourning. It's also possible that by this point, his disciples were fasting because they were praying for him in prison, that he would be released, that he would be protected. There was only one day on the calendar that a Jew was required to fast. It was the Day of Atonement. So one day out of the year, one day out of 365, that the law, Leviticus, said you must fast. One. Do you know how often the Pharisees fasted? We read it in our scripture reading earlier. Remember the Pharisee was all proud of himself. I fast twice in the week. Which may have been based on Moses because this is tradition, this is not Bible. But Moses allegedly went up on the mountain on a Thursday and came down on a Monday or vice versa. So those are the two days that they fasted every Monday and every Thursday. If you were a Pharisee, that's when you fasted. And apparently, John's disciples were doing the same thing. They're all fasting a bunch. The Pharisees fasted in a different way, and that's why we did that scripture reading, because they wanted everybody to know that they were fasting. If they prayed, they wanted everybody to know they were praying. If they were fasting, they wanted everybody to know they were fasting. If they were giving, they wanted everybody to know they were giving. Because they were doing it, Jesus said, to be seen of men, to make sure everybody sees it. And those who do it to be seen of men, you have your reward. You don't have anything coming eternally from God in heaven. Understand, please, God is not against fasting. But if you are led of the Holy Spirit to fast, be sure you're doing it for the right reasons. I'm sorry for my sin, or I want to give some time to reading God's word or praying. And there are specific reasons that you're fasting. Don't do it because you want to twist God's arm into doing what you want him to do. Don't think he's going to be happier with you and that you're going to receive special blessings because you worked so hard to fast. Do it with the right motives and do it at the right times. We're getting to that. Verse 19 is Jesus' answer to them. Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Jesus' illustration here is a wedding. And back at that time, the friends of the bridegroom were responsible for the ceremony and the party afterward, the reception. And this is interesting. This is where a tradition came in contact with the law. But the rabbis of that time said that the joy of the festive occasion of a wedding and the feast that followed it was more important than keeping the law. So if there was a feast day or a fast day or some other special occasion that you were supposed to do something at the temple or supposed to do something on your own, you didn't have to do it if you were at a wedding celebration. That trumped the law. That was their tradition. So Jesus takes that and says, 
they can't fast while they have me with them. Fasting during a wedding feast would be inappropriate in that time. If I came to the wedding feast and said, no, I don't, I, I don't care for any food, that would not be appropriate. I'm supposed to be there and I'm supposed to celebrate. How many of you have been to a wedding before? How many of you have been to a reception? Okay, all of you have been to a reception. Have any of you ever gone to a wedding reception and you get to the venue and what they have there is a sign, please come in quietly. We are all experiencing a season of fasting and prayer for the bride and groom. Has anybody ever had that? Anybody ever seen that? I have never seen that. Why? Because it's a party. It's a happy time. We are happy for this bride and groom. We are wishing them well on their life together. We're celebrating. We're partying. That's the idea here. Why would Jesus' disciples be partying? Why would they be happy? Because they had the bridegroom with them. It's a festive time. It's a festive occasion. And that's what Jesus is telling them. Warren Rearsby said, life is not supposed to be a funeral. God wants it to be more like a wedding feast. I am the bridegroom. These people are my wedding guests. Are not wedding guests supposed to have a good time? That's what our life is supposed to be like. That's what our life is supposed to be like when we come together, folks. When we come together on Sundays, it shouldn't feel like a funeral in here. I hope. Normally, I hope, when you go to a wedding, it isn't the atmosphere of a funeral. Everybody's just depressed. And that's not the way it should be when we come together on Sunday. We are celebrating what Jesus has done for us. We are celebrating what we have in Christ, that he has saved us, that he has given us the hope of eternal life, that we can be joyful and happy in him. Psalm 144 says, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Does that describe your life? There's some people who seem to think, as these Pharisees may have thought, that the sadder I am, never smile, I am sober, I am somber, and therefore I am holy. That's not the Christian life the way Jesus defined it. We can be serious when it's appropriate. I shouldn't go crack jokes with someone who's in the hospital necessarily. But the Christian life should be joyful. It should be enjoyable. Verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He'll be taken away. This is a sudden removal, being snatched away violently. So this is an allusion to Jesus' capture, his betrayal, his imprisonment, his trial, his crucifixion. This is the first hint of that in the Gospel of Mark. So what's going on here? Jesus is changing the illustration, and he's saying, this is like the groom being forcibly removed from a wedding celebration. Anybody ever seen that? You're in the wedding ceremony or the reception and the police come and they take the groom off in handcuffs. Anybody ever seen that? I have not seen that. I hope it would not happen. Or that someone kidnaps the groom. Hopefully not. But he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they will fast. He is allowing for, and you could even say encouraging, fasting when it's appropriate. Solomon in Ecclesiastes said, there's a, a time for everything. There is a season. And there's a time for fasting. But in general, the Christian life should be one of joy and feasting rather than sorrow and fasting. So we've, we've gone through these, shared with you 
what I read in some commentaries, the three different parts of this, that Jesus came to save sinners, not the self-righteous. We covered that. Jesus came to bring gladness, not sadness. We just finished talking about that. But Jesus also came to usher in the new, not simply to unite with the old. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Some of you ladies or men could explain this better than I could, probably. But if you have new, we have, we have a lot of pre-shrunk materials nowadays. But at this time, it wasn't. And so you wouldn't take a new piece of cloth that had never gotten wet, just came off the loom. You wouldn't sew that onto an old garment. Why? Because at some point, it's going to need to be washed again. And what will happen when you do that is that the new patch is going to shrink and pull together and probably pull away from, maybe even tear, what you were trying to fix. It's pointless. It's futile. So Jesus is using that to be a little miniature parable, to be an illustration for what it's like to try to take what he's teaching, the repentance that he is teaching, the kingdom that he is bringing, and compare that to the rules that they've been keeping or trying to keep. Warren Rearsby said, the Christian life is not a mixing of the old and the new. Rather, it's the fulfillment of the old in the new. They were trying to take their religion and just add Jesus to it. And there are people who do that today. Whatever they're most comfortable, oh, I'm good at praying. Oh, I'm good at giving. Oh, I'm good at being nice to people. Oh, I'm whatever you, you feel like, I, I can do this, and, and Jesus helped me do it. No, that's not the point. The point is it's all Jesus and the Holy Spirit doing it through us. Verse 22, he adds another. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. What is that? Some of you young people will love this. They would skin a goat and then they would sew it together. They would do whatever limited tanning they had to and sew it together nice and tight so that they could pour new grape juice, recently harvested grape juice, pour it in there, and as it fermented, as it became wine, it would expand. And it would expand up to the limit of what that new goat skin, that new wine skin could do. The problem is, once it does that once, it can't do it again. So if you put new grape juice now in this already used, already dried out goat skin, now it's going to burst, it's going to explode. Some of you would like to see that too, I realize. But that's the idea. And they would have understood this. This was very common to them. So he's using illustrations that make sense to them. But what he's really saying is that the Pharisees, with their religious rules and traditions, had become rigid, like those old wineskins. You say, yeah, but that's the Pharisees. Okay. We have to be careful of this. Because we have our own ideas. It's this translation of the Bible, or it's this type of music, or this is what I wear to church, or this is when the service times need to be, or this is what we do when we get there, or we do pass an offering plate, or we don't pass an offering plate, or we have this type of membership, or we call our leaders this. And we can get very tied up in our own version of traditions if we're not careful. We should be fully persuaded of this is the way we're doing this because we think it's right according to the Bible. You know I believe that. But we need to be careful about being ultra-rigid as this is the way it always has to be. 
We need to have some flexibility. What if the Holy Spirit prompts you to talk to that person that I would never go talk to that person or go to such and such a place to talk to a person? I would never do that. Well, what if he's asking you to do that? He did it with Peter. He said, go to this Gentile, this tanner, and tell him about Jesus. Tell him about the gospel, the good news. In order to prepare him to do that, he said, eat these things that are unclean according to your tradition. No, I would never do that, Lord. That's what God was telling him to do. You can check it out in Acts. But he did. He obeyed. And we need to be careful that we are not so caught up in this is the way it has to be done that we are old wineskins. Whatever our ideas of religion or the way a service should be run or the way a church should function should be, we need to keep checking them by this Bible. That's what should be rigid, not us. It is rigid. It's written down for our good. And then we need to be flexible beyond that. God, what do you want me to do? God, who do you want me to talk to? God, how do you want me to serve? Two main ideas. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and praise God he is. And Jesus makes everything new. Sometimes it blows our minds a little bit, the way he wants it done. But he's the boss. So are you a friend of sinners? And do you accept the newness that Christ brings? Probably the most basic question I could ask today is, are you a sinner? Whether you're watching or listening online, whether you're here in the room with me, do you realize that you're a sinner? If yes, then I have good news for you because Jesus is your friend. He welcomes you to come to him. He came and lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross to allow you to be with God, with him in heaven forever. And you can believe in him today, accept that free gift of salvation today, and he's your friend. If you've already done that, I'm going to have a couple questions for you. Is your life more like a wedding or more like a funeral? Is everything in your life just doom and gloom and Eeyore? Some of us have a personality more that way. I realize that. But ultimately, our joy, our peace, our strength comes from God. Is that where you're getting it? Or is it just enduring the next day, enduring the next trial? Are you living an abundant life full of joy? Because happiness should be our default. And unless the Holy Spirit has led you to fast, to deny yourself of something for a period of time, you should be enjoying the blessings that God has given. And I've asked it several times already, but final question, are you a friend of sinners? Are you introducing new people to Jesus? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about something specific, then I would just ask that you do it. Talk to him about it. If it means starting something new, doing something new, if it's biblical and you think the Holy Spirit's leading you to do it, do it. If there's a sin in your life that you need to confess and forsake, then please do that. Father, work in our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. Show us ways in which we are self-righteous and think that we're doing it all right and we're better than everybody else. Show us 
where there is pride that has crept into our lives and help us to confess it and forsake it. Lord, give us your heart for other people. You love the world so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. Help us to be willing to talk to others. Yes, to share a tract, but yes, to verbalize the gospel when we have opportunities. That we would love others, that we would be willing to speak the gospel, speak a word of encouragement even, to somebody we wouldn't normally speak to at all. Lord, may we not be stiff and rigid and too caught up in traditions. May we be yielded to your Holy Spirit so that we will be pliable, so that we will be usable when you show us what you want us to do next. In Jesus' name, amen.